0: gospel lesson which is our sermon text today comes from the gospel according to John chapter 2 verses 13 to 22 let me just remind you this is God's word to us it's given to us because he loves us the Passover of the Jews was at hand and Jesus went up to Jerusalem So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and when you raise it up in three days, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. So when therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. This is the gospel of our Lord. Jameson was really bummed that he couldn't be here today um, because it broke a very important streak to him. He had never missed a Sunday due to sickness in 18 years of ministry here in Brooklyn. So he was really bummed to uh, finally have that Iron Man streak uh, come to an end. He was also bummed because at least he claims, so he says, that uh, he was going to preach the shortest sermon he's ever preached in a long time. <laughs> I guess I should have audibled and not uh, prepared a sermon for this passage and told him, well, keep it and do it next week and I'll do something else today. Anyway, so we're going to stick with the uh, sermon text, which is John two thirteen to 22. And before we dive into that, let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we do ask now that as we come uh, to your word uh, as it has been read and now as it, has been, it will be preached, we ask that you would uh, speak to us, that you would uh, remove all obstacles and barriers uh, in the way of being able to hear your voice, the voice of love, because that is the voice that we need to hear above all others. And so we pray that by your spirit, you would be with us now in Jesus name. Amen. So I was I was fortunate to have Uh, a dad who was slow to anger. I mean, he had a temper about things uh, for sure, especially about uh, sports, uh, watching sports, playing sports, uh, which is, I guess, where I get it from because uh, I'm the same way, although I hopefully have matured and grown up and been sanctified some. I don't get near as bent out of shape watching sports or playing sports as as I used to. We have the same habits when we're watching uh, our favorite teams, usually uh, Alabama football or basketball, if we're watching it on TV and they start to play really poorly, we just we just walk away. We just have to walk away. That's the mature response. And we put it on the radio. Some Something about listening to it on the radio is not as upsetting to us as watching it live or in person. But at any rate, uh, my dad was slow to anger. Uh, he didn't really get too angry about things, or it really took a lot. But I do vividly remember the times... Uh, when he did get very angry. And uh, it usually occurred, um, it usually revolved around things at work, uh, things about his job, uh, his vocation, were the things that would get him really, really upset and angry. And what I came to realize over time is that my dad would get angry not because he hated his job or the company that he worked for, uh, he was an Alabama coal miner, by the way. At one time, he worked in the deepest coal mine underground in the world uh, for a time, like a mile and a half straight down. At any rate, uh, he didn't get angry at his work uh, because he hated it or he didn't like it or he thought it was miserable. He got angry, actually, because he loved it. Uh, he loved his job. He actually respected the company that he worked for, and he cared very deeply for his coworkers. And beneath it all, he, had, he placed an extremely high value on working hard and a job well done. So, he got angry when these things were abused or mistreated because he loved them, not because he hated them. And I think we've all maybe seen or learned or experienced this lesson at some point in our lives as well. That often the best way to discover what a person truly loves is to pay attention to what provokes their anger. And this morning in our text, we see very clearly that our God in the form of Jesus Christ is one who is zealous. That in fact, our God experiences anger. Because in this story, Jesus is not meek or mild. He does not... Patiently ask these sellers of animals and the money changers, hey, if you don't mind, you know, could you please just take your business somewhere else? And not, maybe not do it right here. Like, that's, that's not his response. He doesn't organize the disciples into a nonviolent protest, a sit-in, or something of that nature. He does not submit peacefully to the Jewish leaders and religious authorities when they come to confront him over his actions. In this passage, he doesn't do any of these things. And it's clear that he is angry. He is, as the disciples say, full of zeal. That his zeal, in fact, has consumed him. He is passionate and alive and very much physically engaged in the situation. Because anger and zeal can reveal love, I think, that we are given this important picture of not just what it means to have righteous anger, which is a category, but we learn something of the character of God in this passage because anger can reveal love. You see, the opposite of love is not anger. I know we tend to think that. Like, if you love something, you would never be angry with it or at it, with those people. But the opposite of love is actually not anger. The opposite of love is indifference. You know, in the course of my pastoral career, whenever a couple, a married couple, uh, reaches out to me because they're struggling and they're having problems. And I say, sure, I can meet with you. Let's sit down. Let's talk. And if they come into uh, my office, well, I've never, I haven't had an office in a long time. We come and sit at a coffee shop uh, or something like that or a park bench outside... If they come and they sit down in front of me and they look like they are ready to rip each other's heads off any second, then I can, I kind of, okay, we're going to be all right. There's something to work with here, right? But if they come and they sit down and they just kind of fold their arms and stare blankly ahead with like no expression on their face and they don't look at each other, then, then I know, uh uh-oh, we got problems. Because they've moved past being angry with each other to just being indifferent towards each other. And once you're indifferent with someone, it's a lot harder to come back from that. You see, the opposite of love is not anger. So we learn a lot from seeing our Lord and Savior get pretty ticked off about something in this passage today. So there's three things that I want us to see about the zeal of our Lord. That the zeal of our God is intentional, God's zeal is self-giving, and God's zeal is love. So God's zeal is intentional, self-giving, and love. So the zeal of our God is intentional. So in order to see that, I want you to understand the context of what's going on. At the beginning of this passage, John tells us that Jesus and his disciples have made their way to Jerusalem. It's really interesting that John actually includes this uh, very... uh, just sort of, uh, I don't know what to call it, like, uh, sort of eye opening passage about Jesus immediately after Jesus was at the wedding feast in Cana, where he turns the water into wine when he's the life of the party and, like, you know, everything's celebratory. It's like the very next scene, now he's, you know, like, he's not calling the cops, he is the cops, shutting things down. Uh, at any rate, uh, they didn't just go up to Jerusalem at any time of the year. They went up at the time of the Passover, the time when every faithful Israelite male was required to present themselves at the temple and to offer a, sacri- a sacrifice. All right? So this is the time of the year when the population of the city of Jerusalem doubled or even tripled in size as people from uh, Israel streamed up from all the little towns and other cities that dotted the landscape of Palestine as well as much of the Mediterranean world. And they made their way up. They ascended the hill up to God's city. If you were here last summer, you remember we did the Psalms of Ascent. Remember that? So this is that time of year, one of these great feast moments in the time of Jerusalem when people were literally traveling up to God's city and God's house. And then Jesus just didn't go to any place in Jerusalem. He went to the temple. He went to the heart of the city that the Jews held to actually be the center of the entire world because Jerusalem was the place that God had set apart as his own dwelling place. And the temple at the heart of Jerusalem, God set as this very special dwelling place in the temple itself. So it's important to see that Jesus is going there. It's not just accidental, it's not happenstance. There wasn't a more public setting that he could have picked for a Jew. Uh, than this time in the courts of the temple during the Passover. So this wasn't accidental. This was a very intentional decision by Jesus to go to this place at this time. And when he arrives, he takes in the scene. But you see in the passage, he doesn't immediately just start flipping tables and shouting at people. He doesn't do that. He takes it all in. He sees what's going on. He's not impulsive. In a very deliberate way, he then leaves. And he goes out to the marketplace, I guess. I don't know where else he would have got these cords, but he goes out and he finds these leather cords and he sits down and he starts to braid them together. Right? So he sees everything that happens. He doesn't just flip out in the moment. He goes, he goes out, and he finds these cords and he sits down and he starts braiding them together. I just have to wonder, like, what are the disciples doing at this moment? You know, he's sitting there and he's braiding these things together. I mean, they're just sort of like, uh, Jesus. What's going on, man? Like, you know, what are we doing? And then, at least in my imagination, he, Jesus jumps up like Indiana Jones and, whoop, you know, cracks this whip. And they're all like, whoa. And, you know, he's like, well, you're going to learn today. Follow me, you know. And he, um, he goes back to the temple and then he uses this handmade whip that he very intentionally makes himself. And he drives out all the people selling these animals and exchanging money. In contrast to the way that I usually experience anger and zeal in my own life, the zeal of God, the zeal of our Lord, is not reactive. He doesn't just react to the situation and impulsively get upset, get angry, and like, ugh, lash out and do something. Instead, Jesus' zeal is very intentional. And I think that's important as we make our way through the rest of this picture of seeing what makes God angry and what is God's anger like? So the zeal of our God is intentional, but it's also not self-serving. The zeal and the anger of our Lord is self-giving. It's sacrificial. So what, what did he find? What, what was going on that made him so upset? So he sees people selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and there are people changing money, exchanging money from one form of coin for another. So... What's going on there? Well, what, what's happening is this: If you were an Israelite worshiper, when you came to the temple, you were required to offer a sacrifice for your sin. For your sins. So let me explain. So, folks were like, like I said earlier, they were traveling from all sorts of places, uh, some from very far away, to go up to this major, high holy feast. In Jerusalem. So especially if you were coming from far away, you might not bring the animal that you're going to offer to sacrifice with you because travel back then, you know, it was not easy. It was dangerous. It was hard. It was laborious. And so instead of having to keep this animal alive for the whole journey, you would just not bring it with you. You would get it once you got there. Right? So that's one thing going on. But once you got there, you had to pay for this animal. And a lot of times you would have to exchange currency from where you were coming from to the local currency. And there was all sorts of these temple taxes and other things that I won't get into. But at any rate, you had to have the right coin. And maybe you couldn't use Roman coin. Maybe you had to use a different type of coin. So there were money changers there to exchange your currency into local currency and pay temple taxes and all those sorts of things. Therefore, there was this great opportunity for profit. Like good New Yorkers would see this situation and be like ha ha, cha-ching, like we can make some money here. Especially the religious leaders and the temple authorities. So they were capitalizing on this moment. And of course, I mean, come on. Of course they were upcharging for the pigeons and the doves and the oxen and the sheep or whatever. Like, well, you know, you didn't bring it with you. Well, you're gonna pay more when you get here. And of course the exchange rates weren't always good. Or fair, and they were capitalizing on this moment. And then, there, and then furthermore, to really understand what's going on, you have to understand how the temple was constructed. It's basically concentric circles. And in the middle of the temple was the Holy of Holies, where only the high priest was allowed to go in at certain times of year. And he could even die in there, because it was so holy. And then out of that was another circle, and that was the inner court. And if you were a Jew... Or, if you were a certain circumcised, God-fearing convert, you were allowed to go into this court. And that was actually where the, you know, all the barbecuing actually happened: the actual sacrificing of the animals and offering up the smoke and all that stuff, right? That's where the, the main event was going on. And then outside of that circle was the outer court, and that was known as the court of the Gentiles. So, if you weren't Jewish or a special type of circumcised God you. If you were a Gentile, if you were a non-Jew, well, we have a place for you too, but it's outside here, the very outer circle. This is as far as you can go. And so, but that's where they were allowed to come and worship and, and to offer their sacrifices and to worship uh, the God that they, they believed in. But what has happened, you see, is that they've taken that outer court and they've rented it out. That's where all the vendors are. That's where all the people selling animals. That's where all the money exchangers are. So what gets Jesus so fired up is that when he, that he goes out into the street and he makes his own whip and then starts flipping tables and driving people out is because this place that is supposed to be designated for the nations to come in. For the foreigner and the stranger and those on the, quote, outside. This place that is set apart for them to come in and to worship has been turned Into a place of oppressive economic practices for personal gain. A whole race of people who have come into the temple to worship are being segregated and excluded, and their sacred space is being given away for economic gain. So behind all of that, you know, that's what's going on, behind all of that raises this question. If that's what's happening in this place, that's supposed to be a sacred space for worship, then what really is being worshiped in this space? As I've said before, it's often in our anger that we find out what we really love. Is our anger aroused when the interests of others are threatened? Or is our anger aroused when our own self-interest is threatened? Unfortunately, I know for me that the answer to that question is the latter rather than the former. But Jesus' heart is revealed in his anger. But his anger is not experienced because he's being threatened, at least not in this moment per se, or because he's righteously defending his own honor. Rather, his anger is felt because he sees that men and women and children who have risked a very dangerous pilgrimage in order to offer their sacrifice of praise and worship to God are being marginalized in the very house of worship. And he cannot let that stand. He won't let it stand. Because the zeal of our Lord is self-giving. It is not self-serving. Jesus' zeal, his anger, is when the worship of other gods, usually money, leads to the abusive and destructive practices and habits that wound and marginalize our fellow man. So we see that God's zeal is intentional. We see that God's zeal is self-giving and just and stands up for those who are abused and marginalized. And we see that this is all because the zeal, the anger of our God is love. You know, unsurprisingly, once the Jewish leaders and authorities, the temple authorities, find out what's going on down in their temple, in the outer courts, they rush to the scene. And they want Jesus to give them a sign. Well, you know, what sign do you give? What authority do you have to come and to do this do these things. You know, it's very telling what they're angry about when they come and confront Jesus. And in response, Jesus says this strange and seemingly terrible, you know, honestly kind of terrible thing to say, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy the temple, destroy the place of God's presence, the place that God has set apart to dwell, the place where he is it said you can come here and receive forgiveness of sins. Why would you talk like this? Why would you talk about destroying this place? And the response of the, the religious authorities in verse 20, you know, they're like, ah, he's a crazy person. He's just a crazy guy. It took 46 years to build this thing. You think if it got torn down, you could rebuild it in three days? He's just nuts. But what they didn't realize was that Jesus wasn't threatening the, the physical stability of that building. He wasn't threatening just that that physical structure would be torn down. Jesus was threatening the whole system, the whole thing, the whole system of religious and political power in Jerusalem, in the ancient Near East, in the first century. That's what he was threatening. And he wasn't just making a threat, actually. He was making a promise. He was making a holy vow in a very public place, A vow that the Jewish leaders themselves are unwittingly going to participate in when they would eventually conspire to put Jesus to death. To in fact destroy, not that physical building, but the temple of Jesus' body. Just as he dared them to do. So that three days later he could raise it again. And visibly proclaim to all creation what he already knew to be true that it was in and of himself that the fullness of God's being and his presence was pleased to dwell not in a temple made of hands of stone and brick but in his body that by his death and resurrection by his ascension and sending of his holy spirit his body would become the church It will become the true house of prayer for all nations, the true place of sacrifice as men and women are joined to the once for all sacrificial death of Jesus on a cross to the true place of access to God's life giving presence. So that as Apostle Paul would say, by this we know love and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died For us to make us one with him. So, I'll close with this. What do you get zealous about? What makes you angry? When's the last time you went out and made your own whip and defended the marginalized and oppressed? I don't recommend actually doing that, but you get the metaphor and the question. What is it, then, that you truly worship? Because if you are what you love and you love what you worship, and if our anger and our zeal often shows up in what we truly love the most, then tell me, what is it that you love and worship the most? Because let me tell you, our God is zealous. He is zealous for you and for me. Brothers and sisters, you are now, you have always been the object of God's passion. You have always been the object of God's zeal. of Both his love and his anger. And like any good lover, he wants you. He wants your heart. He wants your love. He wants your zeal. He wants Your passion to be rightly ordered back to Him as your first love. So that in turn your heart can be full, full of God's love, and that therefore in turn your heart can be full to turn towards your neighbor intentionally, self giving, sacrificially, so that all will come to know the zeal, the love the passion of our God. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.